Hi, I'm Lori Denning, and this is my podcast, The 20 Minute Scriptorian, where I explore LDS scripture and doctrine for the Come Follow Me curriculum for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Like most of you, I'm a typical Latter day Saint, and I've held a variety of callings from gospel doctrine teacher to institute. I've always loved learning and sharing the scriptures of Christ. Recently, I went back to school, and I'm currently a theology student, where I get to learn context, history, ancient languages, and more importantly, how to learn. I thought you might want to share in what I was learning, and the 20-minute scriptorian was born. While I am a believer, these thoughts are my own, and they are not an official representation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks for listening, and join me on the journey as we explore the scriptures and the path of the disciple of Christ. Hi, brothers and sisters. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the 20-Minute Scriptorian. Today, we're going to head into just Mosiah 18, and we're going to talk about the importance of the Lord becoming one with us, us one with Him, as we follow the covenant path. So just a big shout out. I wanted to uh, thank everybody for joining us. We've got such an international audience these days that I'm just continually humbled and shocked but I want to call out some of the countries that have been joining us in just the last few months. And this will actually uh, kind of tie into the end. So so let's go through and see who's been joining us a little bit. So, of course, USA, Canada, Mexico, bienvenidos, Australia, Azerbaijan, the United Kingdom, United Arab Emirates, big following there, Philippines, Saudi Arabia, New Zealand, Japan, Ireland, Spain, India, Hong Kong, Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland, South Africa, the Czech Republic, Ghana, Guatemala, South Korea, Taiwan, Peru, Argentina, France, Ukraine, Singapore, Bangladesh, Finland, Poland, Colombia, Honduras, Belarus, Nepal, uh, Belgium, Kenya, Portugal, Norway, Indonesia, uh, Poland. Did I? Uh, there's another one I don't recognize. Sarvati, it's in its regular languages. Hong Kong. Sweden, Thailand, Egypt, Romania, Italy, Vietnam, and Brazil. So that is just absolutely amazing. Welcome, all of you guys. It's it's awesome to have such a big group of people. Here we are during this worldwide pandemic, and we're all brought together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is part of the story that we're going to learn about today. So let's jump into Mosiah 18. Now, there are a couple things that I thought really... Uh, have been milling around in my mind. And one of the things that we usually talk about in the all about sections is some of the structure. Sometimes it's called, when you look at a book and you look at kind of how it's structured, its theme, its plot, its characters, it's called literary criticism. Now, don't be scared off by the word criticism. It's not trying to say that it's critical. What you're doing is just taking a, a different look as it literature, not meaning it's not true because it's literature, but just looking at like a book. Why is it structured that way and how do we learn from it? We do it really naturally because we all grew up on books and movies and shows and so we, we kind of understand how stories work. And stories have much more effect in, in a lot of ways on us than if I just told you a list of commandments. So if I just told you this bullet pointed story, it probably wouldn't stick with you quite as well. But if you tell a story or you learn about characters or real people or history, we see ourselves in it and we can reflect on how that uh, applies to our lives. And so I love that version or not version, the 
approach to scripture. And so when we're looking at Mosiah, I've been thinking about what makes Mosiah unique. Now, one of the things that makes Mosiah unique is that it is compiled by Mormon. And so in verse, I can't remember which one it is, but in verse 18, there's, there's a section where Mormon quotes like nine times in one verse. And it was in the waters of Mormon, by the land of Mormon, near the something of Mormon. And I just made a little note, like, is he just talking about himself here? Or I don't, I'm missing the point of why it's called Mormon, except that his name is Mormon. And it just becomes this, uh, the church is kind of formed in this chapter. So something pretty amazing happens. But anyway, Mormon compiles the story of the book of Mosiah and and it's a bunch of coronation speeches. It's a bunch of different kings. We get the Alma the Elder story. There's there's a lot a lot going on in this history as we head down to the land of Lehi Nephi, land of Nephi. You're leaving Zarahemla, but you're part of Zarahemla. You got all this mishmash of story, and he obviously wanted to show us something. He put this story together to say. Hey, guys in the future that are reading the Book of Mormon, this is for you to bring you to Christ. I want to tell you about my people, my people. And of course, this is 500 years before the time of Mormon. So kind of a long time ago for him. But he is picking these stories very distinctly. So ask yourselves, why did he pick these stories? And then why? What's happening? I had some interesting thoughts and wondered if, if maybe we're on the right track here. First, I couldn't find any reference to this, but I had heard this somewhere before, but the name Mosiah. Mosiah is a really interesting name. So it's the name of the book, but obviously not all of it takes place in the time of Mosiah. We have Mosiah, Benjamin, and Mosiah, the kings up in Zarahemla. Then we have Zenith, uh, Noah, and Limhi down in the south. And then we have an Alma branch out, and they've asked him to be their king. So it's a lot of rulers going on in these stories. Also, Laman, the king of the Lamanites, uh, just a lot of, of leaders and ruling groups going on. But this is, you know, 500, 550 years from the time that they have left Jerusalem. They're not speaking Hebrew anymore. Um, this, there doesn't, we know the Book of Mormon isn't written in Hebrew. They do have a lot of uh, Hebrew history, and they certainly have the plates of brass, but they're, they're not a Hebrew people. They're not a Semitic people. So to still have people having Hebrew names is interesting. I mean, we still have people that Hebrew names. I mean, think of how many Nathaniels and Daniels and Esthers and Ruth and Rachels and people, you know, right? You, like a ton of them. But... But the, Mosiah is a weird name. Um, so one thing I'd heard is that perhaps it should stand out to us that it might be a Hebrew name, but it might also be an amalgam name. It might be Mosiah, might be a combination of Mosiah and something like Isaiah. Um, and so it's really an interesting name. Who knows? But I think it's interesting because I saw so many parallels with the story of Moses and it's um Mormon's going to show these parallels over and over and over and over again. He's also going to put a lot of parallels and a lot of quoting from Isaiah and some of the other scriptures. So as I started to ponder that and say, what is, what is Mormon telling us? And then say, well, he's definitely drawing parallels to Moses and, and then uh, perhaps even Isaiah. I started to make a list of what were they? What were some of these examples that jumped out at me? And I thought, let's share a couple together. And then when we jump into Mosiah eight, chapter 18, you might say, I can see where there's this big buildup here, right in the middle of Mosiah 18, where we are today. 
first, um, just just jotted down a couple of things about Moses, and then I'll compare them to somewhere in the story in Mosiah. It might not be Mosiah specifically, but in the story we're reading right now. First, Moses was at one point a cultural outsider, right? So he is a Hebrew growing up in the house of Pharaoh. And I said, what does that happen? Much of this story, whether it's Benjamin and the people becoming separate and separating themselves out, or the story of Alma the elder, the story of Helam and, and all of the followers of Christ that join the church here right now. Perhaps it's even the story of the people that are broken away from Zarahemla. They're cultural outsiders. They're, they're in an outside group, kind of in a, in a, an aggressive land, right? They're part of the Lamanites. They're kind of under siege all the time. So that, that jumped out at me. Second, the story of Moses, he was definitely a ruler. We know he was raised as the son of Pharaoh. And then um, also he becomes a prophet. So Moses is son of a Pharaoh. He's a prophet. And Mosiah is the story of, of many rulers. Mosiah, Benjamin, Mosiah, Limhi Zenith, just as we said, and prophets. So you see in teachers like Benjamin and Alma and Abinadi. So you're like, here are these stories of these prophets that come. Uh, third, the, the people generally outside of these main characters are generally oppressed by a greater civilization. So the Israelites were being oppressed in uh, the land of Egypt by the Egyptians. And then we see the people of, say, right now, Limhi by the Lamanites, right? And some by their own doing, which could also be said of the Israelites at some point. But we see this people being oppressed by a greater civilization. Importantly, we see that they're being led by God, that many times that they're relying on God for deliverance. So it's a story of deliverance. It's a story of bondage and deliverance from physical bondage, like slavery. And that is exactly what we see, for example, right now, the people of Limhi suffering, right? They're in bondage to the Lamanites, some of it from their own doing. And then certainly there are generations there that it was not their fault. So because of these generations of bad choices and a disobedience to the Lord, they are put under severe bondage like the Israelites. Okay. Yep. Um, we also see Moses being called out as a leader of his people. We saw that with Abinadi. Remember when they sucked at the, the evil pr priests of Noah tried to grab um, Abinadi, I paraphrase. It says that his face shone, he was full of power and his face shone like Moses. I mean, they keep even saying Moses. Then there's like quotes of the Ten Commandments. So we know that Moses goes and receives the law. And what does Abinadi quote? The law. What does Benjamin quote? The law. So they all are going back and reminding us of this law, this giving of the law. Also, uh, God's desire, there's a strong desire in the book of Exodus, and you see it continuing on in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In fact, Deuteronomy is a series, If this just resonated so much with me, how much of the first five books, really book one, uh, two, three, four, and five, so Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, and Numbers, those stories are encapsulated in Mosiah over and over again. So, God, uh, if you read De Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is a series of Moses's speeches to the people before they enter in to the promised land. 
and he's going to say, you know, I know we've got these commandments, these other, this law that we've already given, and here's some other things that we're going to review. So it, it's a second rehashing of the law, but it's, it's speeches. And what is Mosiah, but a series of speeches given uh, to the people before they enter the promised land, they're going to head back into Zarahemla. Oh, that one struck me uh, very strongly. In Deuteronomy, part of the story, and in Exodus, they build the tabernacle. They, uh, they go first up on the Sinai, and then at one point they build the tabernacle. And the Lord tells the people, why is he building the tabernacle? So he has a desire to, what? What does the Lord desire? If you said to be near his people, that would be correct. So the Lord desires to be with his people. And what have we been learning about? Abinadi went into detail about being one with his people. Um, I loved how, what, how it said in, in Mosiah 15. Abinadi says, I would that ye should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. And because he dwelleth in the flesh, he shall be called the son of God. And having subjected the flesh to the will of the father, being the father and the son. And Moses um, says the same thing that says that it's this desire. uh, God has this desire to be one with his people. And so we see that. And if you go back and read through, you'll see this over and over again, all the way from Benjamin, all the way through Abinadi and Isaiah and repeating the suffering servant. God is going to become man. He wants to be one with us. He wants us to be one with him. He wants to be one with him. So that resonated. And so we're going to see that today. Um, and then uh, maybe they made the last one. There are more, but this was the last one I just jotted down was, uh, in Moses, well, in both stories, God creates a covenant. He creates a covenant. Now with Benjamin, you saw them creating the covenant to follow the Lord and the law and obey him. And in Moses, you see them covenanting in Exodus 19 to become a priestly nation, a holy nation, and one that's set aside. They also covenant to follow him and follow his laws. And they become a light. It says they will become a light to the nations. So the Lord will use them, prosper them, but also they'll then bless the nations because um, of the Lord's doing. Now, we see a couple of important covenants. We've mentioned Benjamin, but we also are going to see one today. So what is going to be? So let us look at just a few verses in 18 and see if we don't see some of these parallels and this uh, becoming one. So let's go to, I was looking at Mosiah 18 and I'm in about verse 7 through 10. And I want you as we listen to this, you've heard it a lot, but this is Alma and the people. Alma has separated himself out and they're out at the waters of Mormon and they have flee, fled, they fled from the city in Noah. This is, you know, this timeline, we're kind of jumping around the timeline, but they start following and they flee for their lives. Just like Abinadi, they knew that they could be killed. So they, they flee for their lives. And it says it's about 450 people. That could be just the men. They often just counted the men and they wouldn't count the women and children, but clearly it's very large. So Alma's had quite an impact as obviously some of the seeds from Abinadi, this lesson of the atoning Messiah has really resonated with these people. And they, they are so faithful that they are willing to, to leave. So they leave, they go out of town and they, they start a new little town, a little village. And then he, uh, Alma talks to them and he, um, explains what he was teaching. 
See if you can hear what he's teaching. And then they decide to make a covenant. Uh, Alma commits them with a covenant, the Lord's covenant, and what they're committing to do. And Alma, it says, and he did teach them and did preach unto them repentance and redemption and faith on the Lord. And it came to pass that he said unto them, behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus they were called. And now, as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, yea, ye are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and to comfort those that stand in need of comfort and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that ye may be in even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Now I say unto you, if this be the desire of your hearts, what have ye against being baptized in the name of the Lord, as a witness before him that ye have entered into a covenant with him, that ye will serve him and keep his commandments? A powerful stuff, powerful stuff. What was he preaching? First, what changed them? He preached to them repentance, redemption, and faith on the Lord. Repentance, redemption, and faith. Those are the things that changed them. In the end, too, that he says, if this be the desire of your hearts. And he quotes something interesting in here that you might not have caught uh, right away because we hear some of this. But he says, if you are willing to, the desire of your hearts. Uh, where was it? Um, if you will be witnesses of, of God at all times and in all things and in all places, besides that being part of the young women's motto, um, that is part of the Shema. That is the prayer of Deuteronomy 6, 4 goes on that we, that, uh, uh, Jews and Israelites would pray every morning and every night that says that we will follow him with our might, mind and strength, and that we will, um, change our hearts. Now, again, Moses, Moses asks the people an interesting thing when they're covenanting, he asked them to circumcise their hearts. So circumcision, we know that this is an outward symbol of an inward thing, just like this changing your heart. Moses tells them that they need to make a change in their hearts. They need to um, make a, a sign that somewhere inside, somewhere inside of them, their very being, their hearts, that they were changing. And Alma's asking them the same things. He's also saying, if you desire this with everything that you have, with your hearts, then let's make a witness. In other covenants, it could be circumcision. It could be um, um, other signs of covenant. Uh, it could be marriage. It could be sacrifice. In this case, baptism. Baptism. So he says, make this a witness that you have entered into the covenant with him to serve him and keep his commandments. So what about baptism? Is this something that Israelites did? Is this, where do we get this? Now, this is something that baptism is, is kind of introduced. Now you're going to say, Lori, we know, we know Adam was baptized and we know Alma was baptized before. And, um, yes. Now, one of the things about baptism is that, uh, in later, uh, Israelite or really Judaism at this point, um, it was saved for someone who was converting 
into Judaism. So this isn't the ritual washing that you're thinking of, where they would just do a mikvah or a bath that would cleanse them from ritual impurities so they could become holy. This was something that you would do to become new. You were becoming an Israelite. You were returning to the Red Sea. So if your family hadn't been ethnically Jewish or ethnically Israelite, you would be, you would have a baptism reenacting the Red Sea. You had been, you know, water, uh, you're going through the water and now you're Jewish. And so you're showing an outward symbol of becoming a Jewish person or an Israelite or a family of Abraham. And so this form of um, baptism is something that you're saying, I'm going to become one of you. So one of the signs of this baptism is they're becoming one as a church. This is a little bit unique for the for the Nephites. Think about it. They haven't really had an initiation event. They don't. Um, yeah, you saw Benjamin, them saying, yeah, we're going to follow. The Nephites just grew up. And if you joined the, if you followed the Nephite religion or the political, you just agreed with them, but you didn't do anything necessarily. And so here you see this big change. The church, a church, a group, a community is being formed. So not only are you witnessing to Christ that you're part of his family and remember everything Abinadi said about becoming seed and offspring and his family and the children of Christ. This is the action that you you take to show that you're part of that now, that you're accepting you're part of that family. Then he also um, talks about the terms of the covenant, right? So what do you, if you say, okay, I'm willing to become part of this family and become one, what am I supposed to do besides be baptized? I mean, what, what are my responsibilities? What am I covenanting to do? And so powerful. He says, they are, you're desirous to come into the fold of God and be called his people. So first you're going to be called his people. Wow, that's powerful right there. In fact, it's exactly like the Israelites. And then you're willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. You're willing to bear one another's burdens. Well, that's interesting. I would think it would be like keep a bunch of laws or keep a bunch of rules or, you know, uh, keep the Sabbath day holy or something. But instead it's, I'm supposed to help everyone. And I'm supposed to mourn with those that mourn. I'm not supposed to tell them, hey, good news. Uh, God's forgiven you. Don't worry about those that are mourning. You're supposed to actually mourn with them. The shortest scripture in the New Testament, by the way, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Jesus knew Lazarus. Oh, I love, we'll talk about that another day. Love that scripture. But Christ had empathy. He understands us. And we are to do the same thing. When we become into the fold of God, we become one. We mourn with those who mourn. And we comfort those that need comfort. And we stand as witnesses at all things and in all places, even unto death. Now, for that, these people, that was very realistic. For not all of us, that's realistic. For some of us, that might be in our day and age. But for them, for Alma, that, that was very realistic. They just watched Abednego and they fled under penalty of death. So that's pretty crazy. And they're saying, but what do I get out of it? What's the other side of the covenant? That you may be redeemed, saved that your sins may be paid for. And you would be numbered among those in the first resurrection. That's what Abinadi was teaching. How to be redeemed and be part of the first resurrection and eternal life. And he's saying that's the term of the covenant. And that's what they do. And that's what they do. So remember at the beginning, we read all those countries of 
everyone who's come together um, just to listen and, and be part of the Come Follow Me program. And that's what it's doing to us today. We are part of one great family of God. And he calls us all in and we can mourn with those who mourn, bear each other's burden, comfort each other, serve the Lord, keep his commandments, and love him with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, this has been a great lesson for me. I absolutely love the idea of becoming one. And I want to share one more thought. I'm not a big crier, if you know me personally. I don't weep a lot. Um, it's not been something I'm very comfortable doing. Um, but I, like everybody, love emotional things. And if you have not watched the Vid Angel series called The Chosen, you should go watch it right now. It makes me cry. Um, it is a series that they've kind of reenacted the story of the Savior. And it's very well done. But there's a scene where M Matthew, the tax collector, the most despised man, uh, the Lord calls him and uh, calls Matthew to be one of his apostles. And that idea of the Lord seeing him for who he is, and he's different, and he's an outcast, and he loves him, and he calls him anyway. It's something that really resonated with me. It makes me cry. I think the Lord came down onto earth to become like one of us and to love us and show us the way. And he calls each one of us, wherever we are, uh, we all feel sometimes outcast and different. And he loves us. And that's what baptism, being part of the family of God, means to me. So go watch that Matthew scene. Let me know if that made you weep too, because it sure gets me. It's the last episode of season one. But regardless of whether that story or another, the Lord loving us where we are, accepting us, welcoming us into his family so that we can share that love with their, each other is really powerful. And that's, that's the message that I got. We become a priestly nation, a holy nation, and in part of the fold of God. All right, brothers and sisters, good job, Scriptorians. Keep on reading.